Um, I'm sitting with a very special team from UCSD. They are working on a project that could really reimagine the way we, uh, we look at healthcare in general. Um, but more specifically, this project is exceptional in the way it comes together as a team. So through Network Capital, we try and uh, really take peer-to-peer -peer learning and democratize insights all over. It's a pleasure to have you all on board. Um, let's get started with you, Professor Ramesh. Uh, how did this project get started and why do you care so much about it? And what is this project? Uh, it started really with uh, Albert making the connection uh, on how one could be using modern technologies to reduce the cost of creating a prosthetic. Uh, but my personal interest was also partly influenced by the institute that I direct, where we try to combine technologies with its applications, uh, especially health. Uh, so it was a perfect combination of how you use something like a smartphone to reduce the cost of a prosthetic uh, using clever, innovative new methods. Uh, and really, uh, in many ways, Albert was uh, the inspiration, given what he had gone through. And how do you know Albert, and who is Albert? So. Uh, Albert uh, is a research scientist uh, at the Qualcomm Institute, which I direct, uh, but that doesn't do justice to who Albert is. Uh, I should mention that he got his bachelor's, master's, and PhD at UC San Diego, got his PhD in material science, but then he went on to apply what he had learned in pursuit of very interesting things. Yeah, uh, and I think uh, maybe we can ask Albert to tell us a little bit about uh, so, yeah. some I mean, of the, his adventures. So this is probably the world's largest podcast where we have ten people, in, you know, answering a forty-minute <laughs> interview. So tell us, Albert, who you are, and uh, what was the one defining moment that led you to this uh, adventure? Uh, well, I'm, you know, I'm basically I'm, a, I'm an explorer of many things. Uh, I actually have the title of explorer with National Geographic and. Uh, a research scientist at UC San Diego. My home is, as Ramesh mentioned, in the Qualcomm Institute at UCSD. And this is a place that uh, it really brings pretty wild imagination together. What sparked it for me was a lecture that I heard when I was an undergrad, I think I was finishing up my grad school last year, my PhD. And it was about a guy that was trying to use biomedical imaging tools to look between two walls in Florence, in a building called the Piazzo Vecchio, for this belief that he had that there was a gap. And somehow in that gap there'd be the masterpiece of Leonardo da Vinci, locked in time, hidden forever. So, with this, I basically was drawn to the idea that you could, you could actually use technology in completely different ways than you might have expected. You know, something like biomedical imaging used to, to search for a lost Leonardo, that to me was... Um, was basically what I, I thought engineering should be because I think as an engineer a lot of us feel like we're, we're, we're innovating but we're getting further and further away from our humanity and this was a, a way of completely turning that on its head. So right after my PhD I went and uh, sold everything I had, I moved into my car uh, and I gave myself one year to raise money to try to find the tomb of Genghis Khan using satellites and drones and radar and all these other things uh, inspired by that talk. And I know it sounds crazy, but um, I showed up in Ramesh's office and said, I want to do this. And he didn't kick me out. He, he said, okay, well, uh, he gave me a funny look. And, he, and then he said, you can sit at this desk over here and see how it goes. Uh, and then over time he said, you know, let me write you a letter of support and let me help you with this. And then he put his press team on it. And the next thing you know, the, the project had seven legs. And we were within a year funded by both National Geographic and then we got a 
half million dollar NSF grant to try to come up with different technological innovations to find that tomb. That was the first part of my project, and you know, from there we went all over the world. Uh, in the last ten years, I think we've applied a similar approach to maybe I don't know something like uh, thirty different countries. But in the middle of that, three years ago, I was crushed under a collar and my leg was basically destroyed to the point in which we had to make a decision about amputation or basically not walking again for the rest of my life with a, uh, a salvaged mangled limb. So we chose uh, you know, this, this adventure, let's cut it off and see where it goes. Uh, and I happen to have the best in prosthetics around me because I'm in San Diego. Uh, I happen to have the best in neuroscience around me because of people but like But that's true, I mean, this is obviously not an easy moment, right? So walk us through the thought process. Actually, it's not as hard as you think. You know, um, uh, I, I feel like uh, there was a few things that I saw. I had a, I had a phone, that, you know, sitting next to me by the bed, and I saw, I googled, you know, amputee rock stars. And I found this picture of this guy surfing a huge wave with a prosthetic limb. I thought, okay, well, it's not going to be so bad. It's actually going to look pretty cool. <laughs> I'm going to do this. Uh, and, I, and, I, and I met the guy. He called me and we talked. And it was The guy being? This guy named Mike Coots, who is a, a world-class surfer, but with one leg. Uh, and this really bright orange prosthetic limb, you know, jetting down the side of a massive wave in the north shore of Hawaii. And... That image, that single image, really changed my mindset about everything. But I, I had this thing where I could afford that limb, and the more I go out into the world now doing those sorts of things, the more I realize that it was, it's a, it's a privilege of, of uh, having money that allows me to walk because I can afford something like this. But every time I go out, I bump into somebody who, you know, who is either begging on the streets or. You know, a very uh, common sight in India. Yeah, basically, people who, for one reason or another, had an accident, maybe very similar to mine, and it, they didn't have the, the critical threshold of resources to get past that accident, and it completely destroyed their lives. Right? When you lose your limb, you know you don't. Before you you have it, you don't really think about it, right? You don't think, oh, I've got two legs; it helps me walk around. But in the morning, before I put my leg on, I literally can't get to the bathroom. You know, I can't move. I'm I'm completely immobilized. I can't function, there wouldn't be a way of working easily. And it's a very horrible experience not being able to move. But the minute I put this leg on, I can move. And for those who can't afford it, their lives are just stuck in this limbo of immobility for nothing other than the lack of a resource to pay for something as simple as basically a, a, a socket, so something that attaches to your body, and then it could be even like a stick or a piece of bamboo, or it doesn't have to be some, you know, this is, this is a very, fancy foot, but it's not actually that sophisticated. It's just a spring. It's a single, there's no mechanical moving parts. It's just a spring. So, you know, folks like Jaipur Foot have done incredible things, uh, creating low-cost mechanical feet or, or, or single springs out of rubber tires. They've done incredible things. But you still have to show up at Jaipur Foot. You still have to actually get there. And for somebody who can't walk, that's a tall order. How do you get there? So I turned to a group of students. Um, I turned to actually one in particular, this, this student named Isaac, who unfortunately isn't here because he's watching after one of the other students who's uh, sick right now. Uh, and Isaac was just beginning his PhD. He was fully funded. He 
on his own out of a, a grant he'd done. He'd just come from MIT and he was a curious guy. He was doing his PhD in biomimetics and he heard this story that, about, about, it, uh, about mine and, and I had this idea about using the tools that I was using in archaeology, stuff like photogrammetry, the mapping of an object in three dimensions using nothing more than photographs and applying that to this challenge of how do you make you know, somebody's body transport from some faraway place to a place where they can get a prosthetic limb made. I mean, we're talking about teleportation here, right? And I happened to be in this institute which was designed around telecommunications, applied it in really interesting ways. So if you can scan something with a cell phone, then you can send it to somewhere where it can be made and then, and, you know, whatever can be shaped around it, and then it can be sent back to that person who can't move. And this simple concept started percolating in Isaac's mind uh, and then he reached out to a, a couple other students and he met this student named Kayla who's sitting right across from me. Kayla, do you, do you want to mention a, a little bit about that moment? Because I think from those two people, all of a sudden, this student group was completely born organically. And for me, it was like, okay, I'm going to catalyze this thing, see where it goes. Uh, I want to do it, but I'm still running it all around the world. And every time I'd come back from somewhere, I'd show up and they'd made progress on their own, completely organized on their own. I mean, totally organically on their own. So really, it's been a student-led project entirely. Yeah. Uh, so tell, tell us what happened. Sure. So I reached out to Professor McKittrick, who's Isaac's um, PI. And Why? I was looking for research. I just wanted to get my hands on any project. I wanted to learn outside of the classroom. I didn't get an internship that year, and so I wanted to learn in other ways. So I reached out, and she paired me with Isaac. Um, and so Isaac and two other students from other schools, um, we were working that summer. And originally we were just working on a prosthetic foot. We weren't working on the socket at all. Um, and so we took this design that he made in one of his classes as a group project and we expanded upon it. We did a bunch of reiterations, we did analysis, we did mechanical testing. Um, and then after that summer those two, two students left and it was just me and Isaac and Albert and Ramesh came to Isaac and they're like, we have all these ideas. And Isaac and I were just a little overwhelmed. We're like, well, we're two people. Um, we can't do all that, so we need a team. So I reached out to a bunch of student orgs, student organizations on campus, um, and we put out basically an application and we just blasted it through the emails, blasted it on websites. And lo and behold, we got 48 applications wow. um, for a team that we wanted to be max five people. Um, and there were so many great applicants that we actually expanded the team to 10 people. And so Isaac is the leader of all this because he's the PhD student, he has the most knowledge. Um, but I had the network at school, so I used my network and I'm the undergraduate lead. I just essentially send out all the emails and uh, gather all the people, gather all the manpower, and then Isaac um, assigns people to teams. So there was the mechanical team, then there was the photogrammetry team, so the, the programmers, and then this thing called the digital image correlation team, which it, they were essentially were building a testing component um, so that we could test the socket in 3D. Um, so that was how that formed, and it's been going on for almost two years now. That's fascinating. Well, what, was, what was really inspiring to me was that these are students that aren't getting credit for this. They're not making any money. 
They're not, uh, you know, they're putting in extra work, a lot of extra work. I mean, we're I heard somebody about, took the mid midterm exam on the airport, right? This yeah. guy right here, yeah. 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 But, but, but this is, this is like, uh, not, not just this one trip. I mean, we're talking about showing up late at night throughout the week and the day. There's, there was huge demands put on the students to build this concept into reality. We're not talking about an easy concept. They had to figure out mobile design. They had to figure out materials testing. They had to figure out 3D manufacturing. They had to figure out databasing and all this other stuff. Modeling. And what was the goal? Explain it in very the goal, simple terms. The goal was to take away the barrier of access to prosthetics for 40 million people across the planet. Because there's 40 million amputees in the world, as a fact I learned later, of which only 5% have prosthetics because they can't afford a simple piece of hardware. And it's not that sophisticated. It's literally just about getting the fit right. So what are the two or three design principles that you had to keep in mind to sort of go from um, the 5% prosthetic users to say more? So the first one is, Nothing's going to work if we have to brute force it by sending an army of people out to try to help all these people because there's no way that you're going to be able to get to all those people. You don't know where they are. We needed to turn on something that already existed everywhere. So we turned to a piece of technology that we realized was completely ubiquitous, perfect for what we needed. We turned to the thing that's in your pocket, a cell phone. Every single person I know has a cell phone, almost. Uh, and almost all of those cell phones have a camera and a gimbal attached to them inside. So the camera can know where it's positioned. So basically by saying, okay, if we're gonna leverage something already in everybody's pockets, then immediately we can create something that when it's turned on, can access every corner of the planet if there's awareness. But we have to build something that doesn't use language. It doesn't require a lot of sophistication in terms of understanding how to operate. We have to create something very simple that can show somebody how to scan someone's body by moving a camera around in a circle capturing the images, sending them to the cloud, and then, the second part of this, is figuring out how to take those images, turn them into an accurate model of someone's leg, converting that into a model of a prosthetic limb, and then figuring out how to print it so that it's strong enough that they can use it. Then there was a second component of design, which is the ecosystem. How are we gonna pull this off at scale? Are we gonna have a series of printers all over the world? Are we gonna have a big, huge printer facility in the middle of some city that sends everything out? Or are we gonna, how are we gonna make this whole larger manufacturing, this distributed manufacturing ecosystem work? So we're working on that now, and that's why we're here at Inc. That's why we're here in India. We're gonna go meet with the people that have done this the best in a central place, Jaipur Foot. You know, in the world, Jaipur Foot is really the leader in terms of helping people with disabilities, but they are a centrally located place, they're a physical space. We're trying to turn them into a cyberspace. And we're working with people like uh, SREI and, and others that we met through Ramesh Rao's first expedition here uh, last year to work with the Inc. crew. So really this whole sort of network of people was catalyzed through Inc. by Ramesh coming out here and, and, and saying to everybody, this is what's going on in San Diego. It has a perfect moment for me to sort of recount. Uh, I think it was three years ago that uh, we were at an Inc. event where one of the speakers was Arunima Sinha. Uh, she's this remarkable lady who lost both her legs uh, and banded through her out of a train. Uh, but then while she's recovering in the hospital, she uh, gets, uh, makes up her mind that she's going to climb Mount Everest and goes on to do it. She was one of the speakers that year, and uh, I knew about Albert, uh, 
and that got me because he had come to your lab right yes so he's been with the Qualcomm Institute from the very beginning 2006 2007 uh, yeah I started just uh, hanging out as a grad student eating the free pizza at the meetings <laughs> that's always an incentive yeah, yeah. yeah. no so, so Inc has an important uh, role here because uh, of, of that first encounter with uh, Arunima and then uh, in the, the previous Inc uh, we managed to tag along a little a field trip uh, to Jaipur Foot. Of course, having grown up here, I was aware of Jaipur Foot and what they did uh, so remarkably well. And that too was an inspiration. And what the abstraction based on conversations we were having was that, you know, the stump socket fit, that's the part that needs to be personalized. The rest of it can be mass produced. And what we Explain this to, uh, because you're, we are reaching uh, people who who have different levels So every of residual limb, you know, after, uh, What is a residual limb? So once you amputate the leg, let's say, uh, whatever's remaining, left, yes. uh, has a unique shape because yeah. of how it was amputated, where it yeah. needed to be amputated, yeah. right? There's no standard way in which that shape can be uh, yeah. identified. And so when that uh, uh, residual limb goes into this prosthetic, that fit is really the most critical piece. Why? Uh, you know, I should ask Albert to explain. It's, someone it, it's basically, uh, it's, it's like a ski boot. If it doesn't fit well, it's going to be unusable. It's going to hurt. If it's too tight, you, you just can't keep it on your leg. Your, your, your blood builds to the point in which it feels like your leg's going to explode in something that's rigid. It's extremely painful if it's not perfect. Almost extremely perfect. painful. Because yeah. you're putting all your weight on it repeatedly with every single step. You're literally loading it with every pound in your body when you step onto it. And it's a, it's a new wound usually, it's, a, it's not designed, your leg, when it's cut by, you know, down the middle, it wasn't designed to carry weight in that way, you know, it evolved to carry weight distributed through a foot, and the foot's missing, now you're trying to develop something that's completely new, you're, you're essentially loading yourself on the most tender, injured part of your body. So the fit is everything, you have to get it to be the perfect ski boot, and when it comes down to it, the traditional mechanisms for that is using plaster of Paris to mold somebody's body. An expert sits there and shapes it like an artisan. So all the technology is, is an aged old practice of, of, of sculpting. That's the only thing that stops you from having a well-working prosthetic and not. It could be a piece of bamboo under that sculpted shape, but if it doesn't fit well, it's not going to be usable. So what we're doing with this is we're saying, can we change the model of how things are sculpted by first using digital technologies that are very low cost and ubiquitous, the cell phone, to, to create the initial model, to shape it. Then can we find ways in that world to then turn that into the sculpted thing that can be printed out? And so some of these students have spent all their time, all their nights, uh, you know, I'm looking around at this group of students that have spent this huge amount of time completely undirected from uh, That's from beautiful. Me. Just very quickly, can you tell me who does what? Or maybe they can tell you who guys does what. Go ahead and say. I'll and tell you. You should describe, I think, the actual prototype system that you built. Yeah, please. And uh, neither of you seems to be a subject matter expert. So how did you process so much information uh, in your first, second, third, or fourth year? Anybody? Um, so we are in the photogrammetry team, which means... Um, we're able to grab images and construct a 3D model out of it. And why, does that, why is that important? It is important because when we need to create this 3D, uh, 3D model, 
it has to be similar to the shape that we're trying to extract the information. Okay. And um, we pass it that's, that information to the mechanical engineering team so because we are divided in three little teams. Um, here, Joseph. Uh, what do you do, Joseph? I, um, so my background is in mechanical engineering. That's, that's what I'm studying. But I think even among our generalist team, uh, since the summer when I joined, I was very much a generalist. I started uh, on the mechanical testing equipment, so kind of developing our um, <clears throat> our equipment used to analyze the the strength of our of our sockets, um, following in Victor's path. And um, what do you do, Victor? Yeah. So, what I was part of the electrical engineering team, and we were aiming at creating a three D digital image correlation rig. And so that's basically fancy terms to say that we made the um, we used a couple of cameras um, placed around the socket as we deform it to see where we get the most deformations and so we can refine our designs and create an ideal socket that would withstand all of the loads that we would expect to apply on it. Just, I mean, there's a question open to all of you. Whoever wants to answer can. Um, there's no incentive for you to work here. Uh, how did you consume, how do you learn all of this and uh, why, do you, why do you do what you do? Um, basically, um as an undergraduate student, uh, one of my roommates, he was in a wheelchair. And uh, most of the time, he, he needed help on to, uh, in order to reach uh, things that were on the, on the fridge or being able to help him to take him actually to the bathroom, being able to help him um, uh, place him from the wheelchair to the toilet, one of those things and uh, being able to move around uh, in the school. So it's per it matters to you personally. Yes. Any other? Like I personally joined because I was struggling to find purpose in engineering. I'm really passionate about humanitarianism and I just felt that engineering wasn't for me until I found this project. That's so beautifully said. Do you want to add on something to that, Samantha? Oh yes, I think definitely as an undergrad, um, you're always trying to find like what that real application for all your classes is. Like why are we going through like course after course and like why does it matter? Um, so being able to see like how you can actually apply concepts is really important. Absolutely. So I'm the, uh, I'm the I joined this project from the very beginning. I met El uh, Azik two years ago when we were still in a course which is called Human Frontier. So at that time, for me, it's just a course. But at, uh, at the end of that quarter, um, ASIC wants to, um, to take a step forward. So he reached out um, Albert and other um, students, Kayla, to move forward. So at first, I was in the photogrammetry team, but we have no idea what will happen um, right now. Yeah. We just want to see if we can make something to to make this turn this concept into something real. So we did a lot so of taking an idea to execution. Yeah. Anything else, Eric? Um, something that I think motivated me to join this project was I think as a computer science student, I was faced with the two choices of either going into industry and making money doing mindless work, or kind of applying like my skills to something that I care about. Something and with purpose, something with meaning. Yeah, exactly. And it must be a joy to both of you to be working with such a wonderful group. And likewise, so for all of you to be working with such a talented set of professors. You know, for me, it's, it's look, these, 
these people, these humans, they, they could be spending their time doing anything. They're very talented. They could be doing really anything. And yet, they raise their own money to show up here at Jasmine, to go to Jaipur tomorrow, to be in this, this meeting, to come to India, to pull off this project. So they're not just technically smart, they're no, hustlers no, as well. They're well passionate. They, they, they are, they're inspiring to me because this is something where it wasn't top-down, it was very bottom-up. You know, it sort of came out of a bunch of students saying, we can do something meaningful with our time uh, and let's apply it to this concept. You know, I, I'm just lucky enough to have lost my leg in a car accident. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I happened to be the guy that, uh, you know, had spent a lot of time using photogrammetry and archaeology. It was, you know, it was like piecing those two things together was an idea. But there's a million ideas in the world. There's a million ideas in the world. And the difference between an idea and a realization of an idea into reality is a huge leap across a massive canyon. And this is what these students have done. Yeah. by basically coming together on their own. So you consider uh, Ramesh to be your mentor? Absolutely, yeah. Um, so mentor-mentee relationships usually develop over a period of time. Do you disagree on anything? Uh, no, I, I mean, I don't know. I feel like uh, he's a pretty wise man. You know, I, I, I go to Ramesh with, with both you know, support in my research, but also questions about life. Uh, you know, things like... Uh, very deep questions, actually. And when uh, and when I was sitting there in the hospital bed, you know, trying to figure out how to remap my brain, you know, he was talking about philosophy with me, right? They're talking about the ideas that are brought up in, in concepts like the mind and the body, introducing me to people like B.S. Ramachandran and others. You know, really, uh, for me, my life has been defined by a handful of mentors, and I would I would put Ramesh right at the very top of that list. What makes him a good or a bad mentee? <laughs> he's an extraordinarily creative person uh, and I think he's able to overcome I think his creativity overcomes everything else including what he was going through personally so it's actually quite inspiring to see how uh, unconventionally he applies uh, how he persists, persists and the work that he did uh, before all this happened as a National Geographic explorer looking for Genghis Khan's tomb is a good example uh, we've all heard the story we all realize how difficult it is. How many of us say, I'm going to find it myself? So that pluck and courage that Albert has is actually very inspiring. Uh, we happen to be in a very resource, intellectually resource-rich environment, and lots of ideas, lots of tools. So I think you can thrive in this kind of an environment when you bring the right attitude. Uh, so I think uh, it was meant to happen. I should also tell you a small little side story. How did we get here? You know, it's not easy to find a way to have 12 of us show up here. So there was a meeting uh, that we do in India, uh, in, in San Diego. There's a group called the San Diego Indian American Society. For 35 years, the San Diego Indian American Society collects money largely from the Indian population and provides scholarships to college-bound kids. And uh, I've been hosting it. I serve uh, as one of the board members of the board of directors. And so we staged this event, and they're always curious to learn about what's new, what are you doing that's special. And so this year we had uh, uh, Isaac, who's not here, and Sebastian. He probably just showed up, huh? Maybe he'll join us. You should tell him to come up. Uh, describe this project. And uh, out of the audience, somebody stood up, and when they heard that uh, uh, we had the opportunity to come out here and visit the Jaipur Foot, uh, wrote us a check. So the students are here because Somebody Generosity. anonymously yeah. heard the story and said, wow. 
uh, this is it. Uh, so I think there's a lot of such interesting things, students emerging out of nowhere, yeah. support emerging out of nowhere, yeah. technology aligning itself so you can pull off a thing like this yeah. with a little bit of time that you have. And tech innovations and powerful storytelling and the reason that, uh, uh, that uh, Kayla spoke about, I think they all come together so well. I mean, I, I feel that in the entire group, the purpose and the storytelling has been both exceptional. Um, where is the project headed now and what support do you need? This is a very good question. Uh, physically, we're all headed to Jaipur in a day. Uh, we're going to go spend time with the group at Jaipur Foot. But we need some very specific things. We need a group of people here in, in, or anywhere in the world that can help us with some of the coding heavy lifting. We're students and researchers, but you know, there's professionals out there who can really help us take the platform that we're trying to build on the cell phone and really polish it to the next level, creating something that is really usable for the entire population without falling down when we, when we hope that 40 million people use it. Right? We can take things like, uh, like the, the, the whole idea of the databasing system, help us build this, help us figure out how it actually works at scale. And then we're looking for support and figuring out how to build this and solidify this relationship in India that allows us to turn on a network of cell phones in everyone's pockets, but also printers, and kiosks and areas where people can actually get legs made and printed uh, in, in the smallest corners of, of, of this country and then hopefully the world, right? So we're trying to find partners like uh, the Sahaj Network, uh, the Sahaj E-Village Network, we're trying to leverage some of their kiosks uh, that, that exist in 60,000 so villages uh, in rural the, India. The legs or limbs can be built yeah, by 3D finding, printers? Finding a, uh, the distribution nodes across this entire country and then using this model to apply it around the world. We need people that are interested in helping us look for the corporate social responsibility funding that's available possibly in different parts of uh, this community. We're re we are raising a very specific amount of money right now to try to create a two-way uh, relationship between the folks in Jaipur and in San Diego, sending some of their manufacturing and, and prosthetic limb uh, uh, experts to San Diego and, and creating an exchange where we really build out uh, the intellectual shared shared property. Yeah, We have a couple of the main students uh, showing up now that have yeah. been isolated to yeah. the hotel room because one of yeah. them is very sick, uh, unfortunately. Would, Connie, do you, you want to lie down? I feel bad that we pulled you up. But uh, Isaac is sitting here and... Uh, uh, Pat and, and Connie just arrived. Isaac is a grad student who just basically pulled together this entire team. So in the yeah. final moments of this interview, I don't know, maybe Isaac, you want to say something? Yeah, very interested in how this group came together and what were some challenges in organizing something uh, where people of all backgrounds are coming together, not necessarily subject matter experts. We heard from the students, we heard from the professor, we heard from the researcher. Would love to hear from you as well. And any other student who wants to comment? Um, well, it's definitely been a pretty crazy journey, I would say. Um, so, essentially, uh, so, I don't know if Jalane spoke earlier, we were part of this class um, studying prosthetics and just basic prosthetic technology um, over a year ago, almost two years ago now. And, um, and after the class, you know, we were really inspired to kind of take up research on our own. And so uh, I, that's kind of when I first hired uh, Kayla, and we worked together yeah, over summer. Yeah, she did speak about it. Yeah. yeah. Um, but 
I guess if you want to know, right, what was I looking for in students? Um, so when we sent out an application, um, the most important thing uh, I was looking for was was their was their character um, and and their their passion more than anything else. I had a lot of um, responses. So between yeah, like we heard forty eight responses, right? So it was actually more than that. Oh wow! Yeah, um, between the two times we opened the application, it'd be more than seventy five. Um, <clears throat> And, and character is really important because um, you need the right set of people with the right set of skills to give a lot many hours to a project that they're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, it's amazing. Yeah. I was just like telling how much I appreciated this group organically coming together. You know, we're just looking to close now. So looking for final insights from uh, reflections from anybody who wants to share. And also more specifically, what help do you need? Where do you want to take this project? What's your dream? So it actually turned out to be the main reason why I applied for my PhD. So at first I just regarded it as a course, but as we stopped deeper, I just found that we can use the cutting edge technology to help more people to really to do something to, for the rest of the world. So I think the main reason that we keep learning, we keep doing research is that we can use our knowledge, use what we learn from the world to help more other people around the world. Got it. Wonderful. I th- you know, I think this is one of those rare moments where, um, where something becomes greater than the sum of its parts. And that doesn't happen when it's motivated by necessarily personal interest. That happens when there's something collectively that you're trying to build to make in your purpose something fulfilled. Right? And when, when you want to make the world a better place, when you try to want to help people that, that can't otherwise help themselves, somehow when you come together around a team like this, it feels like the thing that comes out is truly greater than the sum of its parts. And that's the best way to experience life, those moments, right? This is why I think all of us do this without a single dollar in mind. I mean, we're not getting paid necessarily. We hope to eventually be able to feed ourselves, right? But, but the idea is, is that the things that we're trying to innovate right now, they could be disruptive not only for you know, for those with, uh, with missing limbs, but also to the future human, the super bionic human, right? Talk about wearables for the, the, uh, somebody playing sports 2,000 years from now might be a completely different person, half robotic, half human, and how things are made for that future might be very much through this kind of process of so 3D modeling, manufacturing, printing, things manifesting out of air, and through these distributed systems we're essentially creating the future of teleportation. So for me, it's like, okay, we have this moon to land on. And the moon to land on is to help 40 million people. But from that moon, you're going to invent all sorts of things that change things in ways that you don't even know. So that's why this is so exciting. Well, I share your excitement. It's been such a pleasure speaking to your entire team. And uh, I love the way all of you came together with no explicit incentive system um, going above and beyond your work. And the collaboration pattern is just fascinating. You have full support from Network Capital. We have about 100,000 subscribers um, on our podcast. And uh, through our other media channels, we at least, you can count on one partner. And let's go at it one at a time and see where it goes. Thank you, my friend. Thank you very much.